So please find in your Bibles the first letter to the Thessalonians. For our visitors, we have been looking at this short letter from Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy. The church there started over a very short period of time, yet God did a great work there. We're in chapter 2. We'll start at verse 13. So years ago, there was a man named Alexander Ogorodnikov. He was in prison in Moscow for, because he had hosted a Christian group in his home. He'd been in prison five years, hadn't received a visit or a letter from any other Christian. He was incredibly lonely, and he wrote a letter to Mikhail Gorbachev and said, I know it's a sin to commit suicide, so I would like to ask that you have me executed by firing squad. Well, the letter became known, was eventually published. More and more people became aware of it. It led to a letter-writing campaign, and eventually, through the influence of British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Ogorodnikov was released a couple of years later. Later, he said in an interview, you don't know what it was like to discover that there were Christians who cared, who wanted me to live and loved me. You can imagine his experience and how discouraged and, and lonely he felt. Uh, and I hope we'll get a clear picture of how we can help our brothers and sisters who suffer today. We've been hearing for the last few weeks about faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to the gospel message, and living consistently with that message. Today, what we'll see is that faithfulness to the gospel also means encouraging new believers, encouraging those who come to faith, but especially those who suffer especially persecution. Suffering is a painful reality for all of us, but I hope there will be some encouragement for us. If you're suffering some kind of trial, if you know people are suffering persecution, perhaps you're suffering being persecuted for following Christ to some degree, I pray you'll find encouragement in this. As I've said before, chapters 2 and 3, Paul is going over what happened when he was with the Thessalonians uh, for those anywhere from a little over two to a little under four weeks. Um, He's doing this to strengthen them and what they are already doing. They're sharing the gospel. They're making disciples. So in the next few verses, he is encouraging them to press on faithfully, even though they are suffering, and to help them also to equip others who suffer. Because as they're sharing the gospel, as they're making disciples, those people are suffering. So he wants them to be in a position to help others who are suffering. So let's read chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So how did Paul help them through this ordeal of suffering? I think his words in these verses help, help us have a biblical perspective on suffering persecution and perspective is so important because honestly the same things happen to a lot of people whether you're Christian or non-Christian you in terms of general suffering you know cancer migraines car accidents all of those things happen whether you know the Lord or not but perspective is so important the gospel helps us have a better perspective now Paul suffered for the rest of his life for following Jesus 
and for serving him. Though he suffered incredibly, and you could read in his second letter to Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 11, just this astounding list of things he had suffered. Just terribly, right? But in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, this is how he describes it. He says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That that is his perspective. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So that is so important for us as we suffer to keep our perspective on eternity, to keep an eternal perspective on the things that we don't see. So it's almost the irony, paradox, we're supposed to be looking at things we don't see and not looking at things we do see because there are realities that are beyond our sight that nurture our hope, that await us, that are glorious and satisfying if we endure. So in these verses, I see five things that can encourage us and others in times of suffering. Uh, First thing to know is that persecution arises when people turn to Christ. Uh, It just helps us to understand why persecution happens. It's not for no reason. Nick Ripkin has researched the persecution of Christians globally, and he says this, the number one cause of persecution globally is people turning to Christ. That's, That's the number one cause. He's been all over the world researching this. That's not a surprise, right? And the Thessalonians were no different. They had received the word preached by Paul, the gospel, for what it is, the word of God, This changed everything. It changed their status before God. They were no longer dead in sin. They were alive in Christ. They were no longer guilty. They were righteous. They were no longer alienated. They were reconciled. They were no longer slave, but free. And more and more, we could go on. In Christ, they found new joy and new hope, new community with others. And all that was important because they also gained a new enemy. The enemy of our souls, the enemy of the gospel, Satan himself, who does not take lightly the loss of a soul to King Jesus. So the trajectory of their lives changed when they turned from their idols to Christ. They no longer served their idols, but Jesus. They no longer offered the sacrifices to their gods, but instead rejoiced in the one victorious sacrifice of Jesus in his death and resurrection. They no longer participated in the rituals and rites of passage and that their families and friends were still involved in but joined in the worship of Jesus with other followers of him. So it's not difficult to imagine that every family gathering, every meeting with friends, quickly became awkward, right? Why don't you join us like you did before? It's just a little offering. It's just a little sacrifice. Why can't you do this? And every gathering also became then an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, you know, I don't do that anymore because it's false and it's idolatry. And let me tell you how to find real life and hope and joy in Christ. Well, you know, I don't know how it was for you. I know when I was a new believer and I went home and announced to family and friends, you know, that I was now the self-appointed prophet of all things and, you know, could, could tell them everything they'd done wrong and everything I was now doing right. That went over sort of like a frog in a punch bowl, you know. You can think about that analogy. It'll, it'll occur to you. Um, we can imagine that their families and friends deeply resented this. Uh, Now, many of us are used to living in pluralistic societies where religious change isn't necessarily seen as as significant. That's kind of how things are today. Now, I made a bit of a splash in my family when I became a Baptist. Um, I mean, literally made a splash because I was baptized. (laughs) uh, Also, it sort of caused some waves, again, not just in the, the 
the baptistry, which is concealed from sight here, but, uh, but also it was a change in our family, but it wasn't a huge, it wasn't a big deal. Family, we're just part of another branch of Christianity, and, and that's all right. Um, so it was a thing, but not a big thing. But that's a fairly new development on the historical scene. Before the last two or three hundred years, you didn't just change religions. It's not like you had options. You were born into some worldview, some religion, and you offered the sacrifices, you did the things, you did the rites of passage, and you died. And you didn't opt out. It's not like you had options. That's, that's what everybody did, and that's what you did. Now, you might add something. If you heard about some new religion, some new idol, you might add some new religion to what you were already doing, but to change your ultimate loyalties, it just didn't happen. But that did happen in Thessalonica. It did happen with the Thessalonians because that is what the gospel is. The gospel, in, in the gospel, God calls us to abandon our idols, to put our hope in Christ and Christ alone in this life and the life to come. And it got worse in history. By the second century, you know, in the first century, Christianity was virtually unknown, but in the second century, Christianity was known. And it wasn't just a thing that's like, well, it's, it's just this ethnic people that are doing this thing. It's, this was a movement that was across all ethnic lines. It was rich and poor, male and female, slave and free. It, it cut across their societies, and Christianity was viewed as a very destabilizing force in families and communities, society, even the Roman Empire. It was widely known and widely despised. I think it's, I don't know, sort of reminds me of our day. Um, I think we could learn a lot. So it's helpful to remember that, Christ, that persecution arises because people turn to Christ. This is helpful because it is, it is in the Lord's hands. It is, we go to him with the pain and the, the sorrow and the discouragement and the loneliness because this is his. I remember hearing about uh, two uh, Mexican church planters that were uh, put into prison for sharing the gospel and, and uh, one of them was really upset and, and scared and, and it's like, what are we going to do? And the other one said, talk to Jesus. We're here for him. So <laughs> it's like, this is what we do, right? Now that's what Paul and Silas were doing in the prison in Philippi. They were singing hymns even in the midst of their prison because in the midst of that, they were worshiping him. But this happens because people turn to him. And for that reason, I believe people who suffer, especially persecution for their faith, they know Christ in a way that others do not. He never abandons his people who are suffering in any way. In persecution, I believe he is especially close. I think it's no secret that, that we call Paul's prison letters in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, the prison letters. He wrote them while in prison. And yet the Christology, that is his what he says about Christ is some of the, the most profound, some of the most beautiful statements. And I think he was maybe hypersensitive, hyper aware of who Jesus is and his beauty and glory and worth. And that found expression in his letters. Okay. Second thing, I said five, so we're on number two. We're, we're doing good. Suffering is to be expected. So we'll jump ahead a little bit to chapter three. The Thessalonians weren't surprised by what they suffered, they shouldn't have been. First, recall from Acts 17, which I'm sure you do. Acts 17, Paul's message was this. It was summed up like this. The scriptures teach that the Messiah will suffer and rise again. Okay, so he's saying the scriptures teach a suffering Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah who suffered 
and rose again. So they, from the, their very first exposure, they knew that suffering was a part of the story. And he had prepared them for suffering. Chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, in fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. So congratulations, Paul. You were right. You predicted this misery, and it has happened. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, don't think that's how it went, but that's what he did. He told them, he prepared them to suffer, and that is exactly what happened. In fact, if you remember from Acts 17, things in Thessalonica turned uh, tense pretty quickly. Remember the mob scene that gathered and all of that. Talk more about that later. Um, so we may think, you know, we're past that now. We're civilized now in our day. We're, we're past all this widespread persecution of Christians and, you know, societies, even though there's nonsense going on. Um, we don't really have that kind of persecution. But you need to recall that, first, more people were killed in the 20th century for Jesus than in the first 19 centuries put together. And there was a lot of people killed in those first few centuries. But even more in the 20th. And just a generation ago here, not just in Czech, but in this region in Central and Eastern Europe, our brothers and sisters suffered greatly for their faith. I will not forget being in, in Romania the first year I, I taught there. It was a, a year, uh, 1995, I think. And I, I'm getting in the classroom and we had some classes for uh, fellows who were older, they weren't residential students, they would come in once a year, and these guys were older. These guys had they'd been in prison, and they'd lost homes, they'd lost loved ones, their fathers had been in prison, died in prison, and I thought, okay, I'm here with my shiny little PhD diploma, and I'm going to tell you stuff. I thought, I don't even know what to say to you guys. You know, it was... Very humbling. Now, I had something they needed, thankfully, information and, you know, that kind of stuff. It was good. But it was really humbling for me to, to stand in their presence, knowing the things they had suffered for the gospel. Um, so that's here, right? There's a, if you go to the Czech Baptist Church here, there's a plaque on the wall in their courtyard of Sidor Burget, who died in a, in a labor camp uh, during war, the Second War. Yeah. It's real. It's here, not far away, just a generation away. And it, I don't know what it would take for that, those days to return. Uh, maybe not as much as we think. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to help us have a perspective that, that understands this is to be expected. We are living in an anomaly right now that, that we do not experience persecution that we can gather freely. And we should thank God for that, but know that it's not normal. So we shouldn't be surprised. As Peter said, 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So we should be prepared to suffer. We should not be surprised. We should rejoice when it happens. Not so much in the pain, but the pain that, that moves us toward Christ and sharing in his sufferings. And we, so even in our evangelism, as you're sharing the gospel with people, you know, share the benefits, forgiveness and freedom in life. Those are staggering. But don't forget to share the cost. Don't prepare people that, you know, your friends and family may not be excited about your new commitment to Christ. And you need to, you need to prepare new believers for the cost of following him. 
So the third thing is we don't suffer alone. So one temptation when we're persecuted is to think we're all alone, like the story I began with this morning with, with Alexander Ogorodnikov. The isolation, that is thinking that no one knew and that no one cared, caused him to despair of life. But Paul tells the Thessalonians, verse 4, you're not alone. And that is so, so very important. You are not alone. The enemy loves to isolate us, to make us think we're the only ones they are going through something, the only ones facing this trial, the only ones suffering, he, or even physically actually alone in a prison cell. He loves and preys upon us in isolation. So Paul explains what he means by this. For one, they were suffering the same thing in Thessalonica that the churches in Judea and the land of Israel were suffering from the churches there. He says in verse 14, you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews. So he's not talking about exactly not focusing on Jewish persecution as much as persecution from family and friends, from people who know and love you normally, they reject you because of this. So the churches within the land of Israel, primarily almost all Jewish believers, they were suffering from their own people. The Thessalonians were suffering the same kind of rejection from their own people. These were people, these were their friends, these were their relatives, they now shunned them. That kind of rejection is really painful. I don't know, how did your family and friends respond when you came to Christ? Did they support you? Did they affirm and encourage you? Or did they mock? Did they try to talk you out of it, discourage you? I remember when I came to Christ, I was a university student, and, and I lived quite differently from the way I live now, going to a lot of bars and things, drinking a lot, and, and with my best friend. And, and when I came to Christ, and I just was sober, you know, and um, going to these places. I was still going to these places with him because, you know, he's my friend, so we're going. And I started saying, do you ever notice these places are dark? So why, why aren't the lights on in these places? And, and why, you know, it's like I just started asking questions, and he got so annoyed with me. You know? It's like, and I think there's a, is it the Hank Williams song, All My Rowdy Friends Have Settled Down? I think he just followed me singing that. It's just like I just no longer enjoyed doing the things that we had done before. And, and it, was, it was different. And we're still friends, but it, that was, it was different. So it comforts us, it encourages us, helps us press on to know we're not alone. We're not suffering alone. And would say that to you today. Um, you may feel alone. You are not alone. Okay. Uh, you may need to make your needs known. We, I mean, you may be dealing with pain. I can almost promise you every person in this room is dealing with pain that maybe nobody knows about. Please make those things known. Let us pray with you. Let us walk with you through those things. If you're being persecuted, let us know. If you know somebody used to being persecuted, talk to them. Let them know they are not alone. It is so vitally important. Fourth thing is that we're part of a larger story. That's in verse 15. Um, so Paul says you're they're not the only ones suffering at that time. They're standing in a long line of people who had suffered in the same way. Before we look at verse 15, though, I want to look back at chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So he says, You became imitators of us. So one time, Paul had been a rising star in Judaism, you know, outstanding among the Pharisees, excelling above all his contemporaries. Outstanding in every way, but when he met Christ, everything changed. Everything changed. 
And instead of being respected and valued, listened to and admired, he was now scorned, he was mocked, he was cast out, he was driven out, and he you know, faced multiple attempts on his life, lowered outside of Damascus, and they put him in a basket, lowering through a window, and he's like, really? <laughs> this is what it's come to? You know, I used to be the guy, and now, now I'm hiding, now I'm running, now I'm, you know, being, multiple times in Acts, he's sent away by night. You know, like, this is not what I thought my career would look like at this point in life, right? But Jesus is worth that. So they became imitators of Paul and, and his group. They all suffered in that way. They also became imitators of the Lord. And we read this, for example, in John chapter 1, in the introduction. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world, uh, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own, that his own people, did not receive him. And then in John 19, in his trial before Pilate, they're shouting, the, the Jewish people there, the chief priests and others, they're shouting to Pilate, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Just a, a blatant rejection of Jesus as king. And Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And this is a consistent theme throughout all of the Gospels, the re rejection of Jesus by his own people. He deserved to be crowned a king, but all, he, all they gave him was a crown of thorns. So now let's go back to verse 15, where he speaks of suffering, and he picks up at the end of verse 14, suffering from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. So he identifies those in Judea who persecuted the church with the ones who had, had Jesus crucified. Now, how involved those specific people were in the death of Jesus, we don't know for sure. I mean, they lived in the area. Many people were in Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus was crucified, so they may have been present at the time, may have been part of that crowd that shouted Hosanna one day and shouted crucify him the next. Uh, we just don't know for sure, but it's, it's possible. Um, but it says, he says, they are also the ones who killed the prophets. Now, they definitely weren't around for that, right? I mean, the prophets were the Old Testament figures, spokesmen, calling God's people to repentance. In the Old Testament, we see, first, we see a clear division between God's people and the surrounding nations. But also, if you read it carefully, you'll see there's a, another division between those within Israel who believed, who trusted the Lord, and those who did not. And God's prophets suffered greatly at the hands of those within Israel who did not believe, who did not follow the Lord. And they were, more than one of them was killed. And Paul, and Paul says here, these who are persecuting you, they're, they're just like those who killed the prophets. Now they weren't a part of that physically, but they are lumped together. It is the same heart that, that did both of these. And in seeing all these together, I think Paul is doing exactly what Jesus did in Matthew 23 as he concludes this blistering rebuke of the Pharisees, these woes that he pronounces upon the Pharisees. He says this, verse 35 of Matthew 23, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now notice, they weren't present for any of that. I mean, they couldn't have been present in Abel's murder, right? I mean, not many people around, okay? But even Zechariah, toward the end of the Old Testament period. But Jesus says, you murdered him. You're responsible for all of these. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. 
Um, I would like to think if I were there, I would cry out for mercy <laughs> right then, because that is bone-chilling to hear that from the mouth of the Lord. I, I, you know, we don't know. This prophetic word was fulfilled at least in part in the year A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Romans conquered it, destroyed the temple. But that's a foretaste of the final judgment. Okay. There is this sense in which it is the same heart that, that does these things. So Paul's words place the sufferings of the Thessalonians in a larger context of a battle that has been going on, not since Jesus rose again, but actually since Genesis chapter 3, that found its first expression in the first murder when Cain murdered his brother Abel. So it encourages us to know this. We're part of a story that's much larger than we are. It's much larger than what happens to us. That we are often powerless. Things are so much is beyond our control. Yet the Lord is in control. We can follow him, cling to him, trust him in the midst of suffering. And it all will be made right in the end. These sufferings, as Paul said, they're light, they're momentary. They will not last forever. And these things will end because the Lord will prevail. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Three ways we see this. <clears throat> Verse 15, Paul said about the persecutors, they drove us out. So let's think about this word, about being driven out. Paul had been driven out of Philippi, had been driven out of Thessalonica and Berea, other places. So as we think about what it means to be driven out or cast out, here's one way the Lord's purpose is prevailed. The Lord prevails is his purpose is accomplished. Then we think back to what happened with Jesus. You say, where was Jesus crucified? He was in Jerusalem, right? Well, not exactly in Jerusalem. He was taken outside the city. He was, he was cast out. Okay? He was removed. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says it like this. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. So what we see is that by when Jesus was driven out, that was actually accomplishing God's purpose, even though in itself it was a terrible, horrible, painful event. Yet, through that, God was accomplishing redemption by Jesus being cast out. He was cast out that we might be brought in, right? So what we suffer will advance God's purpose. Persecution, other kinds of suffering, uh, it will accomplish God's purpose. It will advance God's purpose in our lives, the lives of others, beyond our lives. He will, he will strip every trial of its destructive power and use it to enlarge our joy in Him. So don't despair when you suffer, but press on. You may feel driven out. We all feel driven out of the presence of God when these things happen. It is not true. You, you know... In our day, it's, it's common to say, oh, I just listen to my heart. Don't listen to your heart. The Bible tells us to speak to our hearts, okay? You can't trust your heart. Speak to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. So, okay, rant over. Um, second, the gospel will advance. Now, let's notice something else. He says that, that these persecutors in Thessalonica drove them out of Thessalonica and Berea in order to keep people from hearing the gospel. Now, I read that. I can't help but think of Paul because a few years before this, he was the one driving people out. He used to drive people out. Now he's been driven out. Well, let's think about how this happened. He, after the persecution, after the stoning of Stephen, he began persecuting the church, tearing it apart like a wolf tears a lamb apart. And the church was scattered. He drove people out. 
Well, as those people were driven out by Paul, it's called Saul then, they're making their way around. They're sharing the gospel as they go. And they find themselves, a group of them are in Antioch, and they begin speaking to Greeks. And many of those turn to the Lord. And a church is established. Barnabas goes, and a church is established. By this time, Paul is no longer a persecutor. He has come to faith. He's been converted. And Barnabas brings Paul to Antioch. Antioch becomes Paul's primary sending church that he unknowingly started (laughs) by persecuting the church, by driving them out, by his driving out of those people, more people heard the gospel than would have heard if he hadn't. Isn't that crazy? God's always at work. Our, Our willing and free choices always advance the purpose of God regardless of their intent. Paul willingly, freely chose to persecute the church in the name of God, trying to defend what he thought was biblical truth and, and loyalty to the Lord, and yet that's not where he, what he was really doing, and yet God used that to advance the gospel even further. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So let them drive us out. Let them do their worst. God is at work, and he is always at work. Do not be discouraged. Press on. Cling to him. Trust him. Treasure him. And press on. Now, the third way is his purpose will prevail is that his enemies will be judged. We see this again in these final two verses. He says, and I'm picking up part way through 15, they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their attempt, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So those persecuting Thessalonians, they likely believed that they were doing this in the name of God defending God, helping God, serving God, or their gods, if they were pagan, they weren't all Jewish, defending their religion, defending the stability of their society, whatever it was. The reality is they were displeasing to God and hostile to people. Don't be fooled by people acting in God's name who are, in fact, opposing him and opposing the gospel. Their common aim, regardless of where they were, who they were in their background, was to keep people from hearing the gospel so that they might turn to Christ and be saved. Now, there might have been racial, nationalistic, um, other kind of motivations, political, but ultimately behind all this is Satan, the, the enemy of our souls, who, who wants to keep us from the gospel and the gospel from us. But Paul says the persecutors, they're heaping up their sins. They are living on credit, okay? That is, they weren't paying that day, but they will pay. They will pay. And one of the first vacations we took when we moved to Romania, we, Karen and I went, and our two kids at the time, uh, went, we were in Vienna. And uh, Vienna's really expensive, but it's a lot more expensive than Cluj, Romania. But anyway, um, we in Romania, we saw these humble figurines. We thought, oh, those are cool, you know. And I looked, and it was Austrian shillings at the time, so it was before the euro. And I thought, no. Did the exchange rate in my head. I said, okay, that's about $20 for one, about $30 for the other. I thought, man, this is terrific, because these are normally really expensive. So we bought a couple of them, thought we're going to collect these, this would be awesome. Got back about a, you know, a month, six weeks later, the credit card bill came and it was $200 and $300. It was not $20 and $30. <laughs> so the bill always comes, folks, and it always costs more than you want to pay. We still have those. We were going to make Christmas gifts. Like, we're not giving these things away anymore. <laughs> we're keeping them. We still have them. Yeah. So, yeah, those are treasures now. Well, we only known. So if I'd known actually the price, I probably wouldn't have bought them. I'd have found some cheap knockoffs down the street. But you know. anyway, 
the bill always comes. There is always judgment. Okay. You're not special. There is judgment. You think, well, I got away with it today, so I'm, I'm free. There is sin always comes with a cost. I hear that. I hope you do. And this is so certain that Paul refers to it in the past. He says, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is before the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, he's so certain. He refers to it in the past. You need to know that the Lord will not be defeated by his enemies. He will bring them into judgment and he will rescue his people. In his way, in his timing, for now we live in a fallen and broken world and we continue to suffer. But this allows us to do what seems like the strangest thing. We don't need to worry about vengeance. We don't need to worry about getting back, striking back. Instead, to those who persecute us, to those who afflict us, we show the love of Christ, so that they might turn to him and be saved from the judgment that is coming. So if you are suffering today, whether it's persecution or some other trial, don't abandon your hope in Christ. Treasure him, treasure the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself every day, treasure Christ in your heart, press on a day at a time, be encouraged. You are not alone, you're part of a larger story. God's purpose will prevail it will advance in your life and beyond your life. And there, the day will come when he will judge his enemies and he will rescue you. Now, if you know, if, I hope this encourages you. If you know someone is suffering, pray this might be encouraging to them. Be aware that if you're not suffering, you try to share stuff like this with someone who is. You know, it can sound really condescending. So just know that going into that conversation. Well, if you'll just follow these five steps, all's good. Like, yeah, you know, don't, don't do it quite like that. You know, that's not how it works. I mean, there's, we, they need more than information. They need to know that we are walking with them. They need to know that they are not alone. Now, if you do not know, if you're not, you don't feel like you're suffering persecution, I've suffered very little persecution in my life, uh, yeah, really very little. Um, you may know people. You know, we have friends in different countries who are suffering things like this. But if you really feel like, you know, I just don't know, don't know anything about the persecuted church, the suffering church, I'll just... I encourage you, one good place to start is a website called persecution.com. That's connected with Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's founded by Richard Wurmbrand, a Romanian Lutheran pastor. He and his wife were both in labor camps during the Second War, during the, or, I'm sorry, under communism. And um, um, after they were released, they founded this organization called Voice of the Martyrs. But they track global persecution. Uh, and there are several resources for prayer and for just learning about the persecuted church. Finally, just let me say, whatever you may suffer, it is worth it. Jesus Christ is a person of such worth, of such glory, of such majesty, of such goodness, that whatever we lose because we have trusted in him, you can lose freedom and life and health, anything. But if you know Christ, you still come out ahead. He is worth more than life itself. So treasure him. I would say to you, do not yet believe he died and rose again so that you might know him, so that anything that you suffer, the destructive power is stripped away, uses that for your good, that you might know him, that you might know him, and in knowing him, find life everlasting now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who died and rose again, who suffered. Thank you that we don't follow a Savior who, who has no scars, who condescends and, and uh, berates us for suffering, but instead suffers with us, suffered for us, suffers with us, continues to pray for us, to see us home. So I pray, Father, for uh, these friends here today who are suffering things that they will not speak to other people. And I pray that, that you would encourage their hearts. Lord, for those today, or for our brothers and sisters in chains around the world, so easy to say from this safe place and this safe distance, but we pray that you would help them know that they are not alone, that they would sense your presence, your encouragement, that you would make Jesus so precious to them that they would cling to you and be able to suffer joyfully. You would give them a bold witness and help us be faithful in the things that we suffer. Help us be uh, more aware of what is going on in the world that we might pray and be a part of, of letting your children around the world know that, that they are not alone and encouraging one another through the trials that we face day by day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.